Well, uh, as we approach Matthew chapter 5 tonight, uh, I won't make any secret of it. I'm excited. I'm a little bit intimidated by the text we have in front of us, but I am excited because this really is one of the greatest sections of Scripture that you'll ever find in the entire Bible. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, what we commonly call the Sermon on the Mount, it is an amazingly impressive section of Scripture. And we'll talk a lot more about it by way of introduction, but we'll do it as the way we commonly do it, by just jumping right into the text. So here, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes... He went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Now, the previous section that we looked at last time we were together, the end of Matthew chapter 4, gave us this wonderful account of how people uh, from all over the surrounding regions were coming to Jesus and were being ministered to by him. For example, Matthew chapter 4, verse 25 says that great multitudes followed him, and that they came from many different regions. Now, in response to this, Jesus went up on a mountain. But don't think for a moment that Jesus went up on the mountain to remove himself from the multitudes. This was not a case of, oh man, there's too many people around. I got to find a place where I can just talk to a few people. No, no, no. Jesus went up on the mountain so that the multitude could hear him better. Now, it is true that Jesus gave this teaching to his disciples. Do you see the end of verse 1? His disciples came to him. But that use of the term here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, is probably a very broad use. Sometimes when the New Testament or the Gospels use that term disciples, sometimes it means it in the narrow sense of the twelve, Right? But many other times, it uses it as a very broad term describing those people who followed Jesus but were much more than just the twelve. This is probably the use of the term here. Many among the great multitudes that followed him, mentioned in Matthew chapter 4, verse 25, were listening to this message that Jesus gave over the next three chapters. By the way, by the end of the Sermon on the Mount, maybe we should turn there just for a moment. Turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. Listen to this. It says, And it was so when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching. In other words, that seems to describe a larger group, right? This isn't just the twelve, but it's the people. It's the multitude who heard him. Now, I find it very interesting that in Luke chapter 6, we have a very similar kind of message that Jesus gave. And, And there are people who make a distinction between these, calling this in Matthew the Sermon on the Mount, and what Luke records being the Sermon on the Plain, I prefer to think that they are two distinct different messages. I believe that Luke describes the same basic material that Jesus taught through here, but that he spoke it on a different occasion. But at the same place, this is what Luke says about the audience that Jesus spoke to. He says this, A crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. You see that? A crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people. In other words, this is what I want you to understand. What we're going to study tonight and in the following weeks 
was not something that Jesus gave just to the twelve. The twelve are certainly included, but he taught it to all those who had listened to him, all those who were his followers, all those who agreed to be taught by Jesus. Again, spoken to the disciples, but disciples in the broad sense of those who had followed him and heard him, not in the narrow sense of the twelve. You know, it's important for us to realize that Jesus was not primarily a monastic kind of guy, right? Jesus wasn't the kind of guy who most of the time did his ministry with just a few people, nor was he like Buddha. Buddha, it's very interesting to see, had one teaching for the multitudes and a very different teaching for the small group of his disciples, right? Not Jesus. Jesus taught the same things to his disciples that he taught to the multitudes. And so this teaching doesn't happen in a cave. It doesn't happen in a crypt. It doesn't happen in a small little room. This is the Sermon on the Mount, something that Jesus gave publicly. And he delivered this, notice, when he was seated, verse 1 says. This, of course, was the common posture for teaching in that culture. It was customary back then for the teacher to sit and the hearers to stand. Now look how far away we've gotten from biblical teaching, right? Here you are all sitting down, and here I am standing. Well, look, this is the way we do it in our culture. That's the way they did it in their culture. Although I can see a real advantage to this idea of the teacher sitting and the audience standing. And it's just this, is that you better be interesting in what you have to say, right? People aren't going to stand around forever. I know it's harder for them to fall asleep, but they got to pay attention. And if they don't want to pay attention, they're just going to leave. Well, sitting, again, was the accepted posture of teaching, whether it be in the synagogue or in the schoolroom. This is how people taught. Now, this tells us that Jesus is about to teach, and it's the first record that Matthew really gives us of Jesus teaching. I don't know what your Bibles look like. I'll tell you what my Bible looks like. My Bible, starting at Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, has a lot of red letters. I don't know if yours does. Mine does. I find it very interesting that it seems to be only English Bibles that have these red letter editions. I have not seen it in other translations. And you know what the meaning of the red letters are, right? Those are the words that Jesus spoke. Now look, is there a difference about the teaching that Jesus gave as opposed to the teaching of Paul or the teaching of John or the teaching of Peter? Is there a difference? Well, in one way, no. And in one way, yes. Let me tell you the no way first. The teaching of Jesus was not any more inspired by the Holy Spirit than was the teaching of Paul or John or Peter as we have it recorded in the New Testament. What Paul said in the New Testament was just as much inspired by the Holy Spirit as what Jesus said in the New Testament. It all comes to us from God and God can only speak perfectly. It's all his revelation. So that's one thing to understand. In that sense, there is no difference. But in another sense, there is a difference. And let me tell you what the difference is. When God spoke through Paul or Isaiah or Jeremiah or David, he spoke through their personalities, right? Can't you read the letters of Paul and get a feel for Paul's personality? The same with David, the same with Isaiah, the same with any of the scriptural writers, right? You get a feel for their personality. It was the inspiration of God expressed through the personality of Paul, right? What do we have with the teaching of Jesus? 
We have the inspiration of God expressed through the personality of God. And in that sense, I think there is something special about the teaching of Jesus. And that's why we want to pay close attention to it. Again, not that it's any more inspired. We don't believe that. But it is through God's own personality that we hear this. So what happened? Seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Again, having in mind probably a much larger group than the twelve. By the way, up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, we have not even been introduced to the twelve. That comes later on. Later on, we're going to be introduced to the 12 disciples as a group in the Gospel of Matthew, but not to this point. And so it doesn't make sense that in this point, Matthew believes, or Matthew is presenting us, just the teaching to the 12. All right, so now in verse 2, Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Now, you might think that these are just unnecessary words. Well, of course, he opened his mouth and taught them. How else was he going to teach them? Well, no, 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 wait a minute. Didn't Jesus teach his disciples a lot just by the way he lived? Jesus taught a lot with his life, a lot with just his example. Jesus very much definitely taught with more than his words. So it does mean something that now he's going to teach with his words. Yet, nevertheless, it does mean something to say that Jesus opened his mouth, it means that he spoke in a strong way to address this crowd. He spoke with energy. He projected his thoughts and his earnestness. He, he spoke in a way like lifting up his voice as if it was a trumpet sounding through the daytime. He wanted people to hear him. He spoke like a man who had something to say. And it says, and he taught them saying, and right now we're going to get into that place where the crowd is going to hear what Jesus says, but can you imagine this message that the crowd heard has long been recognized as the very sum of Jesus's or anyone else's ethical and moral teaching. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us how to live. It's been said that if you were to take all the good advice on how to live that was ever said by any philosopher or any psychiatrist or any counselor, and if you took out all the foolishness and boiled it down to the real essentials, you would be left with a poor imitation of the Sermon on the Mount. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is sometimes thought of as Jesus's declaration of the kingdom, or you could say his manifesto. You know, the American revolutionaries had their declaration of independence, right? It was the declaration of their principles and the things that they would found their nation upon. Karl Marx had his communist manifesto. This is what we're going to found our communist movement on, these principles, well, with this message, Jesus, long before either the American Revolution or long before the Communist Manifesto, he declared, this is what my kingdom is all about. This is what I've come to do. I am a king. This is my kingdom. And these are the terms on which my kingdom and its people operates. And listen, this Sermon on the Mount presents a radically different agenda than what the nation of Israel expected from the Messiah. Let us never forget 
that the people of Israel, the Jewish people at that time, were waiting for a Messiah. But they were waiting for a Messiah that would do things very differently than Jesus, in fact, did them. You see, the Sermon on the Mount doesn't talk about the political blessings of the Messiah's reign. It doesn't talk about the material blessings of the Messiah's reign. Instead, it talks about the spiritual implications of the rule of the Messiah in our life. And this great message tells us how we are going to live when Jesus Christ is our Lord. And so it's very important for us to understand The Sermon on the Mount does not deal with salvation as such, although, as we're going to see tonight, in some ways it points towards salvation. But instead, in the main, what the Sermon on the Mount does is it lays out for the disciple and for the potential disciple how regarding Jesus as king makes a difference in your everyday life. Now, it can't be proved But in my opinion, the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus' standard sermon. When it says that he went about all the villages of Galilee preaching the kingdom of God and presenting that message, I think that this is the message that he preached. You know, an itinerant or traveling preacher who goes from place to place, usually he has a core message or a few core messages that he presents, right? I think that this was Jesus' standard sermon. When he went around preaching the kingdom of God, this is what he presented to people. This is what he told them. I'm here. I'm the king. This is the kingdom. And this is what it's like to live in my kingdom. And in doing so, he was contrasting common Jewish misunderstandings of what it meant to live in the kingdom. And I believe that whenever Jesus preached to a new audience, he often preached this sermon or used themes from it. But by the way, I think in that sense, this sermon is very incomplete. In my preparation for tonight's study and future studies, because it's going to take us several weeks to get through the Sermon on the Mount, I sat down and I just read the whole thing aloud at sort of a moderate speaking voice. Do you know how long it took me to read Matthew chapter 5 through the end of Matthew chapter 7 out loud at a moderate speaking voice as if I was speaking to a crowd? It took me 12 and a half minutes. I fully assure you that Jesus spoke to this multitude for more than 12 and a half minutes. And when he went around from place to place, it was his common practice. I don't think to give 15-minute sermons, but to give things that were much further. And what we have here is just the core of what Jesus taught. This is the core, what he and the work of the Holy Spirit wanted uh, preserved. Now, one more thing before we get into the text here. I want you to understand that the Sermon on the Mount had a tremendous impact on the early church. The early Christians made constant reference to the Sermon on the Mount, and their lives displayed the glory of this radical discipleship that this calls for. So now we're going to begin with the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are the statements that go from Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, all the way through verse 12. So this is what we're going to do is I'm going to read Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 through 12, and then we're going to go through and take a look at each individual beatitude. Let's begin with that. First of all, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This first portion of the Sermon on the Mount is known as the Beatitudes, which means in Latin, the blessings. But it can also be understood if you want to take that English word beatitude, you can also take it as the B-attitudes, the attitudes in which you should be. That's sort of a twisting of the Latin phrase, but it's a handy thing for you just to think about. In here, Jesus sets forth both the nature and the aspirations or the goals of the citizens of his kingdom. In other words, if you're going to be a member of Jesus' kingdom, you will have the qualities that he mentioned here, but you will also be learning these qualities. And all of these character traits are marks and goals of all Christians. You see, it's not as if God gives us uh, the Beatitudes as a box of chocolates, and he says, pick out one or two of them. No, we're to take the whole package here. They're not like spiritual gifts where he says, well, you have the gift of being poor in spirit and you have the gift of being merciful. It's not like that at all. Every one of these is for every believer. And if you meet someone who claims to be a Christian, but their lives don't show any of these attributes, you can very fairly question whether or not they're genuinely a Christian. But if you meet somebody who acts as if they've mastered all of these things, then you can very fairly claim whether or not they're honest. So right here, let's take a look at the first one, verse 3, the foundation of it all, poverty of spirit, where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus begins by saying, Blessed. Jesus promised blessing to his disciples, promising that the poor in spirit are blessed. The idea behind that ancient Greek word translated blessed is happy. And there are a few translations that will say that. They will say, oh, how happy are the poor in spirit. Now, I'll accept that translation if, and this is a great big if, if you understand happiness in the truest godly sense of the word. You know, our modern sense of being happy is often just being comfortable or being entertained at the moment, right? Not in the shallow sense of happiness, but in the true sense of happiness, you could say that this word means blessed and happy. By the way, the same word for blessed is also used of God in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, where it says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, it uses the same word there for blessed. Now, who is Jesus to tell us how to have a blessed life? Well, let me say, first of all, I don't know if there was anybody on this earth who was ever more blessed than Jesus, right? Can you imagine anybody who ever walked this earth who was more blessed than Jesus was? I think Jesus is a fair enough authority on blessing. But here's another reason. In Matthew chapter 25, specifically verse 34, 
Jesus said that on the day of judgment, he would say to his people, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. On that day, Jesus was going to judge between the blessed and the cursed. And Jesus knows and can explain what are the requirements for being blessed. Jesus knows what it is to be blessed. And so he can tell us. And so he says, blessed are, not blessed will be, but blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, it does not mean that you say, I'm insignificant. I am worthless. I have no value. That is not it. That's untrue. Instead, to be poor in spirit is to confess that you are sinful and rebellious and utterly without any virtue to make you approved before God in yourself. You see, the poor in spirit are just like the poor of this earth when it comes to money. A poor person in this world has no assets. They have nothing in the bank. They don't have a lot of property, right? They don't have anything. They're poor. Well, spiritually, when you're poor in spirit, you realize, I have no spiritual assets. I am spiritually bankrupt. And by the way, the ancient Greek word that Jesus used here that's translated poor indicates somebody who is very poor. It's someone who must beg for whatever they have or whatever they get. And let me tell you something about this poverty of spirit. It cannot be artificially induced by self-hatred. You can't sit yourself down in a chair and say, I'm no good, I'm no good, I'm no good, I'm poor, I'm poor, I'm poor in spirit. It doesn't work that way. Instead, the Holy Spirit and our response to his working in our heart bring about this poverty of spirit. And listen, I tell you, it's very important for us that this is the first beatitude. This is where it begins. It all begins with being poor in spirit. You know, if you're going to make a ladder, don't you think it's good to make the first rung on the ladder nice and low where anybody can step up on it, right? Have you ever seen these telephone poles or something that they make and they have little things that the workmen can walk on? But the things that the workmen can walk on and climb, they're never down low, right? Why? Well, because they don't want little children climbing up it. They put them up nice and high. But if you want a ladder to be effective for everybody, you make the first step nice and low. Jesus put the first step of this ladder very low for us. Because let me ask you, every one of us has the capability of being poor. Everyone can start here. It doesn't say, first, blessed are the pure, or blessed are the holy, or blessed are the spiritual, or blessed are the wonderful, right? Because we can't all start there. But every one of us can be poor in spirit. I think it's so wonderful that the first point of contact that God makes with us is not based on what we have, but on what we don't have, right? Every one of us can be poor. You could be poor tomorrow if you wanted to, financially, spiritually. That's the idea, poverty of spirit. Now, what is it for these people that they receive? Jesus says there in verse 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those people who are poor in spirit, so poor that they must beg, these people are rewarded. They receive the kingdom of heaven because poverty of spirit 
is an absolute prerequisite for receiving the kingdom of heaven. And as long as you believe that you are good enough or have the spiritual resources in yourself to fix your problems, you're never going to receive from God what you absolutely need to be saved. Listen, the kingdom of heaven is not given on the basis of race. It's not given on the basis of earned merits. It's not given on the basis of the violence of the zealots in Jesus' day. It's not given on the basis of the wealth of a guy like Zacchaeus. It's given to who? To the poor. In Jesus' day, that meant the despised publicans or the prostitutes or those who were so poor that all they had to give God was their faith. They could cry for mercy and they would be heard. I like what Spurgeon said. He said, the poor in spirit are lifted from the dunghill and set not among the hired servants in the field, but among princes in the kingdom. Poor in spirit, the words sound as if they describe the owners of nothing, and yet they describe the inheritors of all things. Happy poverty. Millionaires sink into insignificance. The treasures of the Indies evaporate into smoke, while to the poor in spirit remains a boundless, endless, faultless kingdom, which renders them blessed in the esteem of him who is God over all, blessed forever. Now again, this call to be poor in spirit is first for a reason. It puts all the other Beatitudes into perspective. They cannot be fulfilled by your own strength, but only by a beggar's reliance on God's power. The next beatitude about mourning. Nobody mourns unless they're poor in spirit. No one is meek towards other people until they have a humble view of themselves. If you don't sense your own need and your own poverty, you'll never hunger and thirst after righteousness. And if you have a too high view of yourself, you're never going to be merciful to others. So this is where it all begins. Poor in spirit. Next, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now again, the ancient Greek grammar here indicates an intense degree of mourning. This isn't somebody who's a little sad. This is somebody who's deeply mourning. This isn't the casual sorrow for the consequences of our sin, but a deep grief before God for our fallen state. The weeping is for the low and needy condition, both of the individual and the society. I mean, Jesus mourned, did he? Jesus did not mourn over his own sin. There was none. But Jesus mourned for the effects of sin in a lost and fallen world. You look around you and you see how lost the world is. Uh, The other night, some very kind people took me to a, a, a football match over there at Leverkusen. And it was a great time. And there we are walking through the crowds. And you know, whenever you're in a big, huge crowd there, you just think, man, there's so many people, so many people in the world. Look at the crowds, the thousands of people. And while we're walking in this crowd, one of the gentlemen, one of the men that we were with, he said in the party, and this is what he said to me. He looked, he goes, so many people and they're all lost. You think about it, you mourn. The lost state of humanity. And this sort of the godly sorrow, both over our own sin and over the fallen condition of the world, this godly sorrow, when it works right, it produces repentance to salvation, the same thing that Paul described in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. What's the promise to those who mourn this way? 
Look at verse 4. They shall be comforted. Those who mourn over their sin and over their sinful condition, they are promised comfort. God allows this grief in our life as a path, not as a destination. In other words, perpetual mourning is not the goal, right? But to be comforted of your mourning. So it's okay to mourn and to know something of God's comfort that's brought to you. You know, we don't often think of it, but there is a special blessing in mourning. We oftentimes think of the happy person being the one who always smiles, is always very light and cheerful, and everything's light and bubbly, and they're just laughing all the time, and this is what it means to be happy. But listen, there is a special happiness that belongs to the child of God, the one who can mourn and know something of what Paul described as the fellowship of his sufferings who can know something, as it says of Jesus in Matthew chapter, excuse me, in Isaiah chapter 53, who can be close to the man of sorrows, who was acquainted with grief. There's something valuable in this mourning. So first you have poverty of spirit, then you have mourning, and then now in verse 5, you have meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I find this very interesting. The first two Beatitudes, poverty of spirit and mourning, they mostly deal with the inward condition of a man or a woman, right? This one deals with how a person relates to other people. You're not primarily meek towards yourself. You're meek towards other people. The first two are mainly negative, right? Poverty of spirit, mourning. Those are sort of negative things that are good to have. This one is more in the sense of being a positive virtue. But please understand this. In the vocabulary of the ancient Greek language, the meek person wasn't passive. They weren't easily pushed around. The main idea behind meekness was strength under control like a strong stallion that was trained to do the job instead of running wild. To be meek shows willingness to submit and work under proper authority. It's sort of the opposite of being self-willed and overly independent. Meekness shows a willingness to disregard your own rights and privileges. You know, it's one thing for me to say, I'm poor in spirit. I'm spiritually bankrupt. I'm fine saying that about myself. But if you try to say it about me, I'm going to get mad at you, right? Who are you to say such a thing about me? But you see, what do we do when somebody treats us that way? We have, well, you have no right to say that about me. But the blessed one is meek. You could say that they're meek before God in that they submit to his will and they conform to his word. But you can also say that they're weak before people, in that they're strong, yet also humble and gentle and patient and long-suffering. These meek people, they can be angry, but they're only angry if it can be in the will of God, unless they can be angry and sin not. There are those kind of people who can suffer wrong without becoming bitter or having the desire for revenge. So blessed are the meek people. Why? For they shall inherit the earth. And we can only be meek. 
We can only control our desire for our own rights and our own privileges because we are confident that God watches out for us, that he will protect our cause. The promise that they shall inherit the earth proves that God will not allow his meek ones to end up on the short end of the deal. You know, it looks like the meek ones would be pushed out of the world, right? Get out of here, you meek ones. You know, there's no place for you in this world. Only the strong will survive. It's the survival of the fittest. But no, no, no. What does it say? It says that the meek will inherit the earth. Think about it. The wolves love to eat the sheep, don't they? But for some reason, there's a lot more sheep in the world than wolves, right? How come the sheep seem to be winning if the wolves just devour the sheep? Now, again, because there's in a sense, if you want to make this analogy, God takes care of the sheep. They're the meek that God takes care of. And the meek, I, I think there's one interesting parallel in history that, uh, that this one commentator pointed out. He said that the meek of England, who were driven from their native land by religious intolerance, they inherited the continent of America. Well, that's what it was, wasn't it? It was these meek, humble believers that were forced out of England and they didn't want to fight. They didn't want to start a revolution for their own rights in England. They moved first to Holland and then eventually to America. They inherited a a, a huge country that nobody really had settled much before, but they did it out of their own meekness. Now, interesting about these first three Beatitudes. We notice that of these first three Beatitudes, the natural man finds no happiness or blessedness in them. The natural man doesn't care much for spiritual poverty, right? The natural man finds nothing good in mourning or in meekness. These things are only a blessing for a spiritual man or woman, somebody who's been made a new creature in Jesus. That's the first three. Now the fourth, number six, or verse six, I should say. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, when he says, blessed are those who hunger, he's talking about somebody who has a profound hunger. More than what can be satisfied by a snack or appetizer. This is a longing that endures, and it's never really satisfied on this side of eternity. It's very interesting that he uses the analogy of hunger here, right? Hunger is like a passion within us, right? And and your hunger passions are real, are they not? I know mine are. Well, this passion that these people have for righteousness, it's real. And their passion is natural. Your hunger passion, it's natural, isn't it? it? Just like the hunger and thirst are natural in a healthy person, so this hunger for righteousness is, is natural. This passion is intense, just like hunger and thirst can be. This passion can be painful. Can't hunger and thirst sometimes be painful? This passion is a driving force, just like hunger and thirst can drive a man. But also you would say this, that this passion is a sign of health, just like hunger and thirst show health. So Jesus said, you're hungry and you're thirsty, but for what? For righteousness. I have to say, in the world today, I see Christians hungering for a lot of things. I see Christians hungering for power. I see Christians hungering for authority. I see Christians hungering for success and comfort and happiness. But how many of them are hungering and thirsting 
for righteousness. And by the way, you could say that this is a hunger for a complete righteousness, not just enough to soothe a guilty conscience. Now, how does this hunger and thirst for righteousness express itself? Well, I think that a man, first of all, will want to have a righteous nature. And then he'll want to be sanctified. He'll want to be made more holy. And then he'll want to continue in God's righteousness. And then he'll want to see God's righteousness promoted in this world. And again, he's hungering and thirsting after righteousness. He's not hungering and thirsting that his own political party gets into power. He he doesn't hunger and thirst after such political things. He hungers and thirsts that righteousness might be done in his land. He doesn't hunger and thirst that his own opinions are made uh, most important. He doesn't hunger and thirst that his own denomination is made more important. He hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And what's the promise made to these ones? For they shall be filled. Jesus promised to fill this hungry one, to fill them with as much as they could eat or drink. And isn't it funny? When you have this filling that Jesus promises you, it doesn't satisfy you forever, does it? You just get hungry and thirsty all over again for more and more of his righteousness. Now verse 7, to the merciful, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You know, when this beatitude addresses those who show mercy, it speaks to people who have already received mercy. You say, well, how do I explain that? Well, listen, isn't it mercy to be emptied of your pride and be brought to poverty of spirit? Isn't it mercy to be brought to mourning over your spiritual condition? Isn't it mercy to receive the spirit of meekness and to become gentle? Isn't it mercy to to be made hungry and thirsty after righteousness? Therefore, God expects the one who has received mercy to show mercy. Now, the merciful one is going to show it to those who are weaker and poorer, right? The merciful one will always look for those who weep and mourn. The merciful one is going to be forgiving to other people and always looking to restore broken relationships. The the merciful one is going to be merciful to the character of other people, always choosing to look at what's best in them. The merciful one's not going to expect too much from other people. The merciful one is going to be compassionate to those people who are outwardly sinful, And the merciful one will have a real care and concern for the souls of men. Now, what's the promise to this merciful one? Blessed are the merciful for what? For they shall obtain mercy. If you want mercy from others, especially from God, then you should take care to be merciful to other people. You know, I think about it in the pages of the Old Testament. I think about it. Why did God show such remarkable mercy to King David? King David sinned pretty bad, didn't he? That whole scandal with Bathsheba, the murder of Bathsheba's husband, the covering up of it all, the making himself of look spiritual, even though he was the worst sinner in the whole thing. It's pretty serious sins. You say, why was God so merciful to David? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but I'll give you one that I think is very significant. God was so merciful to King David because David was so merciful to King Saul. 
Didn't there happen many times when David should have killed Saul or had the opportunity to strike back and he would not? He said, no, I won't touch him. He's the Lord's anointed. God put him on the throne. God's going to have to take him off. I'm not going to put my hand to his throat. David did that time and time again with King Saul. David showed remarkable mercy to Saul. Did Saul deserve it? No. That's the whole point of mercy, isn't it? If you deserve it, it's not mercy. No, no, no. David showed remarkable mercy to Saul, and God showed remarkable mercy to David. I want to be on the right side of that equation, don't you? Then we have the blessing here to the pure in heart, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now it's interesting, in the ancient Greek, the phrase pure of heart has the idea of straightness, of honesty, and of clarity. And there can be a couple ideas connected with this. One is of inner moral purity as opposed to the image or just ceremonial purity. This might be the kind of beatitude where Jesus had the Pharisees in mind, right? Oh, they were pure, but only on the outside. On the inside, they didn't have purity of heart. But there can also be another idea associated with this. The other idea is someone who has a single or an undivided heart. They're utterly sincere, and they're not divided in their devotion or commitment to God. And so he says, listen, I'm going to deal with the heart here. Blessed are the pure in heart. For what do they receive? For they shall see God. You got to say the pure of heart receive the most wonderful reward. They are going to enjoy greater intimacy, greater closeness with God than they could have ever imagined. The, the, the polluting sins of covetousness and oppression and lust and the kind of deceptions that we choose for ourselves, they have a definite binding effect upon a person. And the one who is pure in heart is freer from these pollutions. It's very interesting here. God promises this. The pure in heart, you're going to know me more. You know, the pure in heart person, I think they can see God in nature more, right? It's amazing how two people can look at the same sunset and one person sees God in all his glory and the other person sees nothing. The, 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 the pure in heart person can see God in nature. The pure in heart person can see God in scripture. The heart pure person can see God in his church family, right? When you're pure in heart, you come among your brothers and sisters in Christ and you look among them and you go, I see God here. I see God doing something wonderful. The person who's not pure in heart, they don't see it. The pure of heart person can see something of God's true character. I love a story that Spurgeon told on this. Spurgeon told a story of one time he was eating at a fine hotel restaurant with a brother minister, and there they were talking about different things. And they were just talking about how God was doing great things in their lives and just how they loved the Lord. And there was a guy over at the next table. And Spurgeon said of this guy, he said that he had a face that indicated his fondness for wine. In other words, you could just tell this guy drank a lot just by looking at his face. And this is what the guy said to Spurgeon and his fellow minister. He said, I have been in this world for 60 years and I have never yet been conscious of anything spiritual. This is what Spurgeon said. He says, we did not say what we thought, but what we thought was that it was very likely that what he said was perfectly true. 
and that there are a great many more people in the world who might say the same as he did. But that only proved that he was not conscious of anything spiritual, not that others were not conscious of it. Listen, if a person can't see, if they can't contact, if they can't make a connection with God, it's not because God can't be connected with. It's because they do not have the purity of heart to do it. I think we need to think more about this beatitude sometimes. You know, sometimes we encourage people to purity in their life, right? I think many times of the kind of talks that are given to, to teenagers about, you know, sexual purity in their life. And oftentimes, like, listen, you better be sexually pure. You're going to catch some disease. Listen, you're, you're going to be sexually pure. You're, you're going to ruin your life. You better be sexually pure. You're, you're going to get pregnant, you know, and all these different calamities that can come upon them. And listen, there's a place for talking about those things. I'm not trying to act like it's forbidden to talk about that. But you know what? In my sinful mind, I can make an excuse around all of those things, can't I? I can tell myself, well, other people might get that disease, but not me. Other people may get into that kind of scandal, but not me. Other people might get into that kind of trouble, not me. But I have found, and not that I walk in it all the time, but when I have, it's been glorious in my Christian life. I have found that if I make the mastering passion of my life to be closer to God well, then it's easy to put those things away, right? That that becomes an easy thing. Why do I want to be pure? Not because if I'm not, I'll get into trouble. I want to be pure because that gets me more of God. And more of God is what I want more than anything else. Next beatitude, number seven. It's a blessing to the peacemakers. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, when he talks about peacemakers, he's not talking about people who live in peace, but people who actually bring about peace. They overcome evil with good. You know, one way that we can accomplish this in our life is by spreading the gospel. You know, the gospel is called in one way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the ministry of reconciliation. And in evangelism, we make peace between man and the God that they have rejected and offended. And this is blessedness. It's blessedness. Now, we should say that the blessedness of the pure in heart is stated before the blessedness of the peacemaker. And I think there's something to understand there. First be pure, then be peaceable. The peaceableness that we're looking for is not an agreement with sin or an alliance with evil. No, no, no. We set our faces against sin. But once there's purity, then we make ourselves at peace with all men. And when we think about this work of peacemaking, don't you often think of making peacemaking between two parties that are fighting? You know, here's one person fighting here, and there's another person fighting there. Oh, and they're just so mad at each other. And I'm going to come, oh, come on now. You guys make up and be friends. And that's one way to do it, right? That's one example. That's fine. But listen, you know another way to be a peacemaker? Is when I have a conflict with you. When you and I are in the fight, can't I be the peacemaker? Can't I be the one who says, listen, you injured me but I just want to forget about it and let's be reconciled. Or, I offended you. Would you please forgive me? I want to reconcile and be the peacemaker. You can be the peacemaker when you're the one in the argument, either as the injured party or as the party who has offended somebody else. When we think about it, listen, it's the devil who's 
Who's a troublemaker, right? God loves reconciliation. God loves peace among his people. God loves peace in this world. That's why it says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. The reward of peacemakers is that they're recognized as true children of God. They share his true passion for peace and reconciliation, the breaking down of these walls between people. The the, the peacemakers blessed by God. Now, let me tell you this. The peacemaker may be hated by man, right? He may get nothing but trouble. I, I try to step between two people who are in a market. I try to be a peacemaker, and sometimes what do I get when I get in between two people who are fighting? I get attacked by both of them. Isn't that commonly the case? The peacemaker may be hated or ill-treated by man, but he is blessed by God. He's blessed to be among the children of God, adopted into his family, surrounded by brothers and sisters through the ages. It can be a very thankless office to be a peacemaker, but nevertheless, it is the work of God. Matter of fact, I think it's very fitting that he says, for they shall be called sons of God, because was not this greatest work of Jesus on the cross to be a peacemaker between God and man on the cross? Isn't that what he did? And you could say that Jesus suffered ill from both sides. Man mistreated him on the cross, right? But did he not also suffer at the hand of his father on the cross? But there he was in the middle, making reconciliation between God and man on the cross so that peace would be made between God and man. Now, the last beatitude, starting here in verse 10, kind of folds into a little bit of discussion on how the world receives these kind of people. I mean, think of these people. Think of the kind of people they are. They're poor in spirit. They mourn over their own sin and the effect of sin in the world. They're meek. They hunger and thirst after righteousness. They're merciful. They're pure in heart. They're peacemakers. And what is the world going to do with people like this? I'll tell you what the world is going to do with people like this. They're going to persecute them. Look at it here, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Wow. Wouldn't you think that these kind of people, everybody would love them? It's true, some people love them, right? But lots of people will hate the kind of people that are described right here. Do we need a bigger illustration of this? than Jesus himself? Did not Jesus live every one of these beatitudes? Who who was the poor in spirit one? Who was the one who mourned? Who was the one who was meek? Who was the one who hungered and thirsted after righteousness? Who was the great peacemaker? Who was the one who was merciful? All of these different things. Was it not Jesus? And was he not persecuted? And these blessed ones that Jesus speaks about, they're persecuted for righteousness' sake, and notice, for Jesus' sake. It says both things, right? Verse 10, it says that they're persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then in verse 11, he says, you're persecuted falsely for my sake. You, You see, they are persecuted for righteousness and for Jesus, not for their own stupidity or fanaticism. I never forget the story I read once about a a guy who 
was a Christian and he was really complaining, yeah, I'm really being persecuted for my faith. You know, I'm, I just got fired from my job because I'm just making a stand for righteousness. And somebody asked him, well, why did they fire you? Well, what the guy was doing was he worked in a warehouse where they stored televisions. And what he would do is he would go around the, the televisions and kick them in, kick in the picture tube. And he'd say, tool of the devil, and kick it in. And so they fired him. And he wanted people to think that he got fired for righteousness sake. No, sir, you got fired for stupidity's sake. You're stupid. They should have fired you. They should have taken you to jail for destroying all that property. Don't blame your stupidity stuff on some noble persecution. But again, there are people, many people in this world, both past, present, and sadly in the future, who were, in fact, persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's interesting. The character traits that are described in the Beatitudes, they're not really valued by our modern culture, are they? We don't recognize or give awards to the most pure in heart, right? Where are you going to find that on a television show, right? Some television talent show. Who's the most pure in heart? You know, you're not going to find that. Or, or who's the most poor in spirit? No. Our culture doesn't think much of these character traits, but they do describe the character of the citizens of the kingdom of God. So blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. By the way, Jesus brings insults and spoken malice into the sphere of persecution. Physical torture is not the only kind of persecution. Evil and wicked and mean things that people say against you. That's a kind of persecution as well. What does Jesus say when you're persecuted in this way? Did you notice that? Verse 12, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. That phrase, exceedingly glad, could be literally translated that the persecuted people should jump for joy. Why? Well, number one, because they have a great reward in heaven. And number two, because they're in good company, the prophets who were before them were also persecuted. And this is a very strong word, this idea of jumping for joy. It means to be very happy. I remember one old commentator that I was reading here, John Trapp, where I've referred to a time or two. He named some men who did in fact rejoice and were exceedingly glad when they were persecuted. He mentions a man named George Roper, who came to the stake where he was going to be burnt, leaping for joy. And when he saw the stake, he went and he hugged it and held on to it. And that, he was burned in that position of hugging on to the stake. And then he describes a man named Dr. Taylor, who leapt and danced a little as he came to his execution. And when they asked how he was, he said, Well, God be praised, good master sheriff, I'm never better, for now I'm almost home, I'm even at my father's house. Then he describes another man, Lawrence Saunders, who with a smiling face embraced the stake that he would be executed at, and he kissed it, saying, Welcome the cross of Christ, Welcome everlasting life. These were men who did it. And we can do it too. You see, the world persecutes these good people because their character expressed in these Beatitudes is so opposite to the world's way of thinking. Now listen, the persecution that we face in the world today, it might not be much compared to these brave men who went to their death kissing the very stake that they would be burnt at. 
But listen, if no one persecutes us, if no one speaks against us, how real are these beatitudes in our life? It's something for us to consider. I think maybe for some of us, the great prayer that we need to offer after considering all of these Beatitudes is not just to go through them one by one and say, Lord, um, am I poor in spirit? Lord, am I mourning? Uh, Lord, am I meek? Lord, do I hunger and thirst after righteousness? Lord, am I merciful? Lord, am I pure in heart? Lord, am I a peacemaker? But then to ask yourself the question, am I persecuted enough? Is there nobody who says bad things about me? If that's the case, then maybe we're guilty of doing what Jesus is going to talk about in the next few verses, of putting our light under a bushel. But we're going to leave it here for tonight. We'll pick up on this next time that we're together. And, you know, it's going to take us a while to get through this great Sermon on the Mount. But when we stop at these things and we take a look at these characters of a kingdom citizen, it's very fair for us to ask, is this us? I mean, look, let's bring this down to real life, people. Jesus said that this is what the character of the people in his kingdom would look like. Jesus said, if I reign over you, if I am your king, this is what my citizens are going to look like. It's well worth it for us to take a good look with this and to, to turn back through this through this week and take a look at each one of these and say, Lord, where are these things in my life? And maybe to take it as an evidence. If no one speaks against us, maybe they're not shining as brightly as they should be. Well, Father, our prayer is that you would make these things real in our life. You know, looking at this list, Lord, of these Beatitudes, it makes us very convinced Father, they can only come into our life as a genuine work of your Spirit. And that's what we pray that you would do, Lord. That you would work by the power of your Spirit in our lives, day by day, step by step. Lord, make these things real. We want to be citizens of your kingdom. And Lord, we want to be seen as citizens of your kingdom. Help us to do that, Lord. And even if it brings persecution our way, help us to bear it as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.